I'm Carrie Miller, and this is my Friday book show, Big Books and Bold Ideas. The idea at the heart of political scientist Barbara F. Walter's new book is that a contemporary civil war in America wouldn't much resemble the last one that we fought on our soil. We picture officers on horseback, she writes, and blue and gray-clad infantrymen charging each other on enormous battlefields. We think of muddy embankments and cannons. A civil war like this, we conclude, could not happen again. But that's a mistake, a failure of imagination, she asserts. And this is an hour on the anniversary week of the January 6th insurrection to explain why. Barbara F. Walter is a professor of international relations at the University of California, San Diego, and a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. Her new book is titled How Civil Wars Start and How to Stop Them. And she joins us from San Diego. Welcome. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. It's great to be here. Thank you. Professor, I think we have a citizenry that that not only associates civil wars with those 19th century images that you evoked, but that may also believe that unless we're fighting over something existential like slavery, that, that we're not in danger of a civil war. And I wonder if that also contributes to what you talk about as a failure of imagination. Hmm. Well, I've been studying civil wars for the last 30 years in places like Iraq and Syria, uh, Mozambique, Northern Ireland. Um, and what we've learned uh, during that time is that civil wars tend to emerge in very similar ways, no matter where they break out. And in fact, we know that there are two factors that are particular warning signs um, for the outbreak of political violence. The first is whether a country is an anocracy, and that's a fancy term for a partial democracy, a government that's neither fully democratic nor fully autocratic, something in between. And the second factor we know often precedes civil wars is when a population, a society begins to break down along ethnic, religious, or racial lines, and parties emerge that are attempting to gain political power with the goal of excluding everyone else. So this is what we've seen when we've looked outside the United States at civil wars that have happened over the last 80 years. And of course, over the last five years, I've been watching both of these factors emerge here in the United States and emerge at a surprisingly rapid rate. And that's why I wrote this book. So it sounds like the answer to the question is it doesn't have to be something that we we look back and say well it was clear that there was something existential at you know at heart of mm-hmm. that at in and, and it sounds like you're saying you can slip into that place yeah. through this slide to anocracy without even realize re, without even realizing that we're headed on that slope on that slippery slope is that right Yes, that's absolutely true. So one of the surprising things that I discovered when I started to talk to people who have lived through civil wars in Sarajevo, in Ukraine, in Iraq, is that all of them vehemently state that they didn't see the war coming. Mm -hmm. And in fact, most of them, um, when they talk to me 
and looked back in time, still couldn't believe that it had happened. And so civil war does sneak up on people. And it's because oftentimes they don't know the warning signs. But there's been so much incredible scholarship on civil wars that we do know the warning signs. Um, and so if people are paying attention and they know these warning signs are emerging, they can do something to stop it. The other thing I've wondered about with this this kind of sliding towards slouching in some ways towards mm-hmm. anocracy is whether we misread the the depth of the factionalization that is occurring right now in America because you know it fills our television screens we're used to to hearing about this and it doesn't seem as stark as when someone with your kinds of qualification and experience look at where we are i, I would you characterize the factionalization that we're living through right now in America. Yeah, so I think there's two things that are that are going on. Um, the first really is this democratic decline. And a similar dynamic is happening with how people view this democratic decline as they're viewing this ethnic factionalization. I think most Americans, most people think about um, different types of government in these two stark terms. You're either a full democracy or you're a full autocracy. And the reality is is there's a whole spectrum of different types of government. And so here in the United States, people have a sense that our democracy is is declining or that our democracy needs reform. But they don't seem particularly worried about this because in their mind, they think, oh, we're really, really far from autocracy. It's going to take a really long time. And it's highly unlikely that we will ever become um, an Iran or you know, a, a Saudi Arabia, highly autocratic government. What they don't know is that being in this middle zone between full democracy and full autocracy is actually the most unstable and the most dangerous place to be in terms of political violence. And so they're complacent because they don't understand the danger of anocracy. And then in terms of ethnic factionalism, um, I think during times of uncertainty, people, human beings, all of us tend to um, feel insecure. Um, we, we tend to feel easily um, perhaps threatened and fearful. And when that happens, um, uh, people can be um, prone to gravitate towards their own identity group. And often during these uncertain um, transitional times, times when there are often opportunities to grab power by one party or another, um, you see ethnic entrepreneurs emerge. And ethnic entrepreneurs are oftentimes politicians who um, have figured out that if they play on ethnic fears, racial feel, fears, religious fears, that they can convince a population to support them no matter what. And this allows them to catapult themselves um, into power. And so, um, again, I think oftentimes people think that ethnic identity is a positive. Um, and, mm-hmm. and, you know, in in some ways it can be, you know, your personal identity um, um, is very powerful, but it can be manipulated and it could be used by, uh, by ambitious self-serving individuals for their own ends. I, I thought it was interesting, all the different 
ways that you write about how we can see factionalization. And again, how yeah. in the political sphere, we interpret that as a strength. I want to talk about geography yeah. for a minute, because you know it, it's undeniable that we are riven over rural and urban divides. Yeah. There's a southern yes. and a northern right divide, coastal and interior. Yes. And you argue that extremist groups are very adept at exploiting even these geographical factions, which, which again, I think goes to what you said about, you know, we look at that and say, well, I'm a proud Southerner and there is strength in that identity. Yes. What's the dark side of that? I think the dark side of that in part, especially when groups are geographically separated from each other in this um, rural urban divide uh, is that people don't interact with each other anymore. And, and you see that, that also happening during an era of COVID when, when people are staying home, they're not mingling, um, you know, much on the outside. I think when people are separated from each other, there's a tendency to see each other less as human beings to, to fail to see the common humanity that they have. Um, and, and we do know, for example, historically, that ethnic groups that are geographically concentrated, often in the periphery of a country, are the ones that are most apt to rebel. Um, so it is this is isolation, the separation um, that in part seems to create some of the conditions for, for violence. I don't, I don't want to miss what you just said about groups that are on, I guess what we, you said the periphery, what I would think of the fringe yeah. of some of these areas. And, and of course, then I think about some of the militias that are very active in a place like Idaho. Is, is that a right example of what you're, what you're describing? Yeah, that would be an example. And it, it's not necessarily anything about rural areas that make them more prone um, to rebellion. Um, I think it actually has a lot to do with collective action problems. You know, for a rebellion to get off the ground, um, one of the things you have to do is to evade um, government uh, policing, right? Uh, governments generally mm -hmm. don't um, want to see um, nascent rebellions grow. And so they'll um, they will take measures to try to infiltrate those groups, to try to squelch them. Um, and this is harder to do if a group is operating um, far from the capital city, um, in areas with um, uh, difficult to traverse terrain. Um, and so that's where you tend to see nascent rebellions forming. I want to ask you for your insight on this NPR Ipsos poll that came out on Monday. Here's what's confusing. 64% of Americans believe that U.S. democracy is, quote, in crisis and at risk of failing. Yeah. And yet two-thirds of the GOP respondents who participated in the poll agree with the verifiably false claim that voter fraud helped elect yes. Joe Biden in the 2020 election. They're concerned about the quality and the character of our democracy, but they have succumbed to this big lie. I, I Square that for me. Help me understand how we've come to that place and what it means. There's two things going on. The first is that today, 
America is going through this difficult transition where we're moving for, from a white majority country to what will become a non-white majority country. Um, that's probably going to happen around the year 2045. Mm -hmm. And what that means is the once dominant group here in the United States, whites, um, are going to lose their majority status. And if you're in a democracy where uh, you have one person, one vote, it doesn't take much to look down the road and realize that that system will no longer serve you. And so there is a subset of the white population, um, and, and white supremacists would certainly be in that subset, who have no interest in maintaining democracy here in the United States, um, because they know that's going to disenfranchise them. And so they're actively attempting to cement advantages in the system that will ensure their continued dominance for years to come. We know, again, by looking at other civil wars outside of this country, that the groups that tend to start civil wars are not the poorest groups. They're not the immigrants. They're the once dominant groups that are either losing power or have lost power. Um, dominant groups that are on the decline don't tend to go down without a fight. What I think I hear you saying then is that although there is no evidence to support the claims that former President Trump has been making and that a lot of people have been echoing, this is about, this is about kind of creating a reality that allows people who are deeply uncomfortable with where the country is headed to, to rationalize a hold on power. Is that too simplistic? No, it's exactly right. So, um, I, and I truly believe that, um, you know, many Americans believe that the election was stolen. If, if you listen to what, um, the, the insurrectionists who were interviewed said about January 6th, they saw themselves as true patriots, people who were defending the constitution. Um, and so the question is, um, you know, who perpetrated the lie and why are they doing this? And this is gets back to what we know about ethnic entrepreneurs. Um, a great example of this is Slobodan Milosevic. Mm -hmm. um, at the end, in 1989, 1990, the Soviet Union is collapsing and it suddenly becomes apparent that Yugoslavia is going to be independent. It can choose its own political system. Uh, and the, the people of Yugoslavia very quickly gravitated towards democracy and they set up competitive elections. Slobodan Milosevic was an old time party communist. Everybody in Yugoslavia knew he was a communist. Communists were not particularly popular in Yugoslavia in 1990. And yet he was an ambitious politician and he wanted to win these new elections. And he understood that he could not run as a communist, but he had to reinvent himself and he had to figure out what was going to get him elected. And he realized that the largest ethnic population in Yugoslavia was the Serbs and he was a Serb. And so he convinced Serb citizens that if they didn't vote for a Serb, namely him, 
Mm -hmm. uh, that a Croat would come to power and the Croats would begin to target and discriminate and potentially kill the Serbs. And he was really, really effective. So he, in essence, created this big lie in the former Yugoslavia that Yugoslavia belonged to the Serbs. Um, it had historically, the Serbs had been independent um, at one point in time, unlike the Croats. Kosovo was the historic home of, of the Serbs and therefore Kosovo belonged to the Serbs. This was his big lie, and it was very effective. And of course, once you hear that story, you see the parallels here in the United States. Um, Donald Trump was, when he ran in 2016, was running against a very, very deep Republican bench. Nobody expected him to win the nomination. Wow. He had to figure out a way to distinguish himself. And it was only after he started um, to push his message of anti-immigration that he saw that that resonated with a subset of white voters. And that's what catapulted him to the top of the Republican ticket. Um, so you see these parallels with ethnic entrepreneurs, politicians, self-interested politicians who uh, realize either um, either they understand this intrinsically or they just happen to um, figure it out uh, over time that playing to people's identity and playing to people's fears about the other uh, can be one way to guarantee the loyalty of a base of voters. I'm Carrie Miller, and you're listening to a conversation with Barbara F. Walter. She's a professor of international relations at the University of California, San Diego, and the author of a new book titled How Civil Wars Start and How to Stop Them. And of course, this week we are observing the one-year anniversary of the January 6th insurrection. And so our conversation is discussing that as well as other international examples of sliding towards civil war, what that may mean for the factionalization that we're witnessing inside the United States. And and Professor Walter ha also has a section in the book about how to stop them, how to see what's happening and how to stop it. One more note here, um, because of what you've just described with uh, Milosevic from this poll. Yeah. In this Ipsos NPR poll, one-third of Trump voters say the attack on the Capitol was actually carried out by, quote, opponents of Donald Trump, including Antifa hmm. and government agents. And, and here's one of the poll respondents. They probably had some Antifa people, or they paid those people to do that and try to say that it was Trump's people. And then she goes on to describe something called a false flag operation. Now, if we take her at face value, what I think you're telling me is she truly believes that, even though there is all kinds of documentation to the contrary, that the January 6th commission is going to publish. She is succumbing to this opportunism and entrepreneurship that you were talking about yeah. by people like Milosevic and Trump. Yes? Yeah. So one thing that um, ethnic entrepreneurs and extremists um, need is they need at least some support from average citizens. By definition, extremists are um, are relatively rare. And so if they're going to succeed, they have to somehow convince more 
more normal citizens uh, to support their cause. And so one of the things that Milosevic did to convince average Serbs to join militias, to join paramilitary groups, and to begin to kill Croats was he convinced them that Croats were were planning to exterminate them just as they had done in World War II. Um, and people, those average Serbs really truly believed that. Um, and then of course, you know, there's a propaganda machine that often accompanies this. Um, Milosevic uh, was very adept at capturing the state uh, television stations and the radio stations and continuously, continuously broadcasting a message of, of threat and fear. And you see it here uh, as well, where, um, you know, controlling the narrative, um, convincing people that there is a real threat out there, that the left is arming, that the left is um, intent on putting down whites no matter what is a really important strategy that extremists and entrepreneurs must pursue if they're going to grow their movement. You have some passages about what it was like to watch this unfold last January 6th. Yeah. And you say that it had a troubling familiarity yes. to it. A part of me, you wrote, did not want to accept the implications of what I was seeing. What, take me through this a bit about you turn on the television, what happens next? Well, I'll tell you what surprised me, and then I'll tell you the surprising emotion that followed. What surprised me when I turned on the television was how jubilant the crowd was, how public um, they were with what they planned to do. Um, if you had been um, studying the far right here in this country, you you knew that they had been planning this for months. And on on social media, there was all sorts of advice given about what to bring to the rally, um, what streets to take from the ellipse to the Capitol to take the back road so that you could evade any police that might be there. When I watched it on television, the the ins- you know, these, these, I don't even know what to call them, insurrectionists, protesters, uh, American citizens, um, they marched straight down the mall with their cell phones in their hands, taking videos of themselves. They did it with such impunity. And that took me by surprise because it was such a public display of this idea that they were either above the law or they truly believed that what they were doing was correct. And that's, it was just hard to wrap my mind around how could they possibly believe that going into the Capitol, um, threatening lawmakers and with the intent to overturn a democratic election was somehow justified. So that was my first reaction. My second reaction was relief, was relief. By the next day, I was relieved that this had happened and that it had been so public and so big and so impossible to ignore. Because those of us who study 
extremism and terrorism and the origins of insurgencies and civil war. We've been talking about the risk factors that we've been observing for the last few years. And most people, when when I talked about it, would look at me as if I was insane. And certainly that I was you know, perhaps even engaging in fear mongering. And that was really frustrating to see the the depth at which the American public was in denial about what was going on behind the scenes and what was being planned and the growth of extremism in this country that ultimately could be very dangerous. And so when it burst out into the open on January 6th of last year, I thought, oh, thank God, you know, people can finally see and they they can no longer deny that we have a problem. I think one of the the things that was so startling for, for those of us who I guess were not heeding your warnings, yours and others' warnings, yeah. was the righteousness. I mean, there was this sense that, which I think goes back to what you've said about the conviction yeah. that... These people yeah. are acting upon something righteous and just. I don't, what I think we've seen since then is it's very hard to penetrate that kind of righteousness with reality. This gets to, I have a chapter in the book on social media called The Accelerant. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the sources of this righteousness comes from the belief that, in fact, the election had been stolen, that, in fact, this country is going down the wrong path, that our democracy is broken, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And and the people who believe this big lie believe it because every media source that they are accessing is telling them the same thing. And we now know that a majority of Americans get most of their news on social media. And we know that recommendation engines are feeding um, individuals on social media messages that conform to the ideas that they already have. And in fact, pushing them more and more to the extreme. So if you're somebody who lives in a city um, and you type in climate change, it will fill in climate change is bad or climate change is happening. But if you live in a conservative part of the country and you type in climate change, you'll get is a fraud or a whole series of completely opposite statements. And so you're being fed completely different information. And so it's understandable that people would believe that what they believe is the truth because they're not hearing anything else. One of the things you talk about is how accepting Americans are becoming, and you you note across the political spectrum, about this idea of violence as a means to achieve political goals. And Hmm. I raise this because I read this op-ed in the Washington Post written by three retired generals. Yeah. About how the military had better prepare now for an insurrection in 2024. And and they wrote, imagine competing commanders-in-chief, a newly reelected Biden giving orders versus Trump or another Trumpian figure issuing orders as the head of a shadow government. Worse, imagine politicians at the state and federal levels illegally installing 
a losing candidate as president. I mean, maybe before January 6th, that just would have been unimaginable, a failure of imagination, as you talk about. Yeah. But it sounds like when you poll Americans, more and more of them think, well, if that's what it takes, what these generals describe, then that's, then that's what democracy demands. What do we do about that? Well, part of the problem is that people on both the right and the left, but in particular the right, don't see democracy as working for them. Um, they have the demographic problem, and that's a really big problem in their eyes. And there's no way to fix that um, by working within the system because democracy really doesn't serve them. On the left, you also see people becoming disillusioned with democracy because we have such paralysis in government where legislation is not happening. And we have paralysis in government because one party and, and actually um, the minority here in this country increasingly can hijack legislation and, and prevent a, any legislation from happening either because of the filibuster or because of advantages they have with the electoral college and controlling the Senate and a whole series of quite undemocratic features of our democracy. And so you can see how, how you, you have an increasing percent of citizens who are, who are coming to the conclusion that democracy is not working for us for dis di different reasons. And of course, those elites who have an interest in perhaps eliminating or watering down democracy to maintain themselves in power, they benefit from, from this. They don't want a functioning democracy. Donald Trump or, or whoever the next Donald Trump-like figure is, somebody, you know, a wannabe autocrat, doesn't want democracy to work well. And so they're stymieing any attempt at reform. You know, I, I'm trying to think about how to ask this question because sometimes what the necessary intervention is is in the eye of the beholder. So you know there are there are people on the left who are saying add more justices to the US Supreme mm -hmm. Court because democracy is at risk and we can't afford to be in the the kind of situation where as you said the political minority controls what's happening in the country. Yeah. How do, I, I guess I'm asking you, Professor Walter, how you get the, how you calibrate the right balance of necessary intervention. I mean, that's a great question. There's a lot of things about the American democracy that are archaic that other liberal democracies don't have and wouldn't in a million years want to have, and that are undemocratic. And it stems back to our history with slavery, that there were a whole series of compromises um, that were written into the Constitution, fairly undemocratic compromises in order mm -hmm. to bring the South into the Union. And those still exist. And what that has meant is that in increasingly power is disproportionately placed in the hands of 
um, rural conservative states. Um, and that means that they can control the Senate. We know that, um, you know, state legislatures, uh, can have an enormous amount of power in terms of running state um, elections. And so you have partisan politics um, coming into play um, in elections, again, in a way that can, you know, potentially manipulate outcomes. That's very undemocratic. You know, what the United States has to do is it has to look very carefully at these features that either have continued to exist long past their um you know, their, their expiration date, but also features that mm-hmm. have, that have developed over time. The filibuster, the filibuster is a very relatively, um, new feature and it's gotten worse. Um, over time. It used to be that if you wanted to filibuster, you had to stand in front of the Senate um, for hours and hours and hours. And that was uncomfortable and time consuming and hard. And both parties decided to do away with that. All you have to do now is is basically say, I'm going to filibuster and you can um, force bills to reach a supermajority, which, which again, creates a lot of paralysis, which hurts our democracy ultimately. So there, uh, uh, gerrymandering would be another um, feature that has developed over time that has, has been used in ways to create a far less democratic system. So there's a whole series of features um, that didn't exist initially um, that have developed and have been manipulated and exploited um, sometimes by one party, sometimes by both parties. Um, and we should get rid of them. Okay, so, so this is interesting though. So president Biden, let's talk about the voter right voters rights. Oh yes. Act. Because this is a really good example. The, the kind of voter suppression. Yes. That's going on. And, and the, you know, the passing of legislation in state capitals. Now, a lot of people, many of them Democrats, are really alarmed by what this is going to mean. President Biden, here comes the filibuster again, yeah. probably stopping that, the passage of that legislation. President Biden, who understands the way the Senate works, you know, intimately, hesitates to do anything about the filibuster because he worries about the ongoing consequences once Republicans have control of the U.S. Senate. Right. I mean, it's that's why I asked you about how do you calibrate the right balance for intervention at a time when, you know, when so much is at stake? And I guess I just wonder how you think about an example like that. The big problem is that the system is increasingly structured to favor um, rural white Americans over everybody else. And they have an incentive um, uh, not to, uh, you know, change the system in any way. Um, And then you have this filibuster, which, of course, you know, the the Democrats worry about because they know they're probably going to lose the Senate and the House um, in the midterm elections. And the filibuster will be their way um, to put a halt to Republican legislation. Um, And so the problem really comes down to, okay, how is a minority of Americans 
able to capture the Senate and the House of Representatives such that the Democrats um, feel that their only means of controlling um, that uh, um, or having some influence is this weird filibuster rule. Um, and then that gets down to gerrymandering and our electoral system that gives, um, uh, you know, that, that again, disproportionately favors a minority of voters. Um, and so how do you fix that? I think one way to fix that is um, by individual Americans simply voting. Um, the 2020 election had the highest turnout in something like 120 years. It was a boom for, um, for participation. And yet... 80, 80 million eligible American voters didn't vote in 2020. That's a lot of votes. Um, so um, if more Americans voted, if it was easier to vote here in the United States, if turnout was higher, we would see a different composition um, in the House of Representatives, in the Senate. Um, and that would help create a situation um, where perhaps the filibuster was no longer necessary, where perhaps um, reform was possible. Um, so I, I actually think we're in a situation where where elites really don't have incentives to reform or can't reform the system, given the composition we have of politicians in power. And that means that more voters will have to get out go to the polls, and ensure that we have a different composition. Barbara F. Walter is on Big Book's Bold Ideas, the Friday book show, and we're talking about her new book, How Civil Wars Start and How to Stop Them. She is a professor of international relations at the University of California, San Diego, and has studied civil wars around the world as part of her scholarship for many years. Uh, you know, Barton Gelman published an article in The Atlantic that was much discussed a couple of weeks ago. Here's something I want to ask you about. He issues a lot of warnings about what Trump is up to, and this is not some transient or loosely committed movement. Um, he criticizes President Biden. Is this something that President Biden and other others of the uh, democratic, I guess, political leadership ought to be talking about with more urgency and emphasis, or are they aware of, of you know, the, the forces that are in, in movement here and, and what turns up in that Ipsos NPR poll, which is you cannot reach the people who most need to be reached they realize that there is a threat. Um, and certainly if they, you know, didn't a year ago, they, they do now. I, I it, Biden is a very savvy political operator. He understands how the Senate works. He understands how the U S government works. He has a very good idea of probably what he can and cannot accomplish. And even what he thought he could accomplish, for example, this big infrastructure plan, um, he had really great difficulty getting the votes he needed from his own party. If he is going to reform our democracy, he knows that he's going to need some Republicans to help him. 
And right now, the Republican Party um, is, for the most part, with a few exceptions like Liz Cheney, standing lockstep um, behind um, behind Trump. And they have no interest in reforming. In fact, preventing reform is their lifeline to maintaining power. And I suspect that President Biden understands this, and he's made the decision to invest in things that he can accomplish, understanding that these major reforms that are so incredibly important uh, will not be possible. Having said that, we have an, an example of a country that was able to do this. So I have a story uh-huh. um, in the last chapter of the book about South Africa. Um, I was in college in the, in the 1980s, and I was already interested in political violence back then. And I remember we, I was sitting in a class, and the professor asked the class, um, you know, if, where, where in the world do you think the next civil war is going to happen? Which country do you think? is likely to to implode. And everyone agreed it was going to be South Africa. And of course, if you lived through that time, uh, you remember the, the riots, you remember Soweto, you remember um, uh, South African uh, police killing 100-something children. Um, uh, the, the government, the apartheid regime was becoming increasingly violent, increasingly repressive. It showed absolutely no desire uh, to reform. And in fact, it, w- it would show that it was willing to kill and target black citizens to keep itself in power. And then something changed. And de Klerk came to power, who was um, intent on reform. And the reason why de Klerk replaced Botha, who was an ardent um, uh, supporter of apartheid, was because the white business community in South Africa demanded reform. And they demanded reform not because they suddenly became moral, Uh, They demanded reform because economic sanctions were hurting their bottom line. And they understood that if they continued to support apartheid, and in fact, if they doubled down on apartheid, that um, their businesses would eventually fail. And they made the decision that they would rather have political reform and majority, black majority rule than to continue to lose significant profits. Um, And it was only then that the political elites um, who had benefited from the white apartheid system um, were forced to reform. And that's, of course, when Nelson Mandela was released from prison and he eventually took power. Um, And so that is an example, an even more extreme example, um, where you had uh, a government that was serving a small group of individuals who had no incentive to reform. Um, And if they reformed, they were going to lose power. Um, But they were forced to reform because business elites um, would no longer tolerate it. You know, we seem to be on the path to that. Yes. In the in the day, the hours and the days. Remember, there were yes. The business community came yes. out and said they were going to withdraw their yes con- political contributions to Republican, and all of that. Well, some of it, some of it stuck, but a lot of it seemed to 
diminish. And and I hear you in, there's going to have to be self-interest at work here too, and we're going to need more than the political, the political class to be committed to this. Yes? Yes. Now, part of the problem here in the United States and, and another way in which our system has become less democratic over time um, is the influence of big money in politics. Citizens United a few years ago, which opened up um, uh, uh, campaigns to large individual donations, has had a radical effect. I think it's something like 100 um, American families now um, donate more money than any anybody else. Wow. Um, and what we know is that billionaires, um, especially the billionaires who've been pumping tons of money into individual campaigns, tend to be more extreme ideologically than the average citizen. So if they are allowed to contribute unlimited amounts of funding to the candidate of their choice and in the process gain influence, um, but also help to catapult individuals who otherwise might not have had a chance to win, um, they're likely to choose candidates who espouse more extreme ideologies as as they do. And of course, they have their own interests in mind. Um, And if they can get, um, you know, certain preferential legislation that helps their businesses, then um, this is worth their investment. So, so, um, you know, the fact that we have money in uh, that's, that, that, that we haven't been able to to have campaign finance reform mm-hmm. um, also uh, lends itself to the decline in our democracy. I want to come back to one more really key point of the book. Yeah. You say, but political polarization does not increase the likelihood of civil war. What increases the likelihood of civil war is factionalization. I, I, yeah. I don't want listeners to miss this because yes. you hear a lot of the rhetoric about we're so divided, we're so polarized. But that's not what is going to accelerate, if that's what's happening, our move to civil war. Will you again explain the difference here? Yes. So um, political polarization is when, let, let's say a two-party system, where members of each each party um, have quite different uh, or on opposite sides ideologically. So one side favors um, school vouchers and one side doesn't. Um, <clears throat> one side favors um, a, a strong social safety net and one side doesn't. Um, and so you could go down the whole political spectrum. Um And that um, used to be the case here in the United States as late as 2008, white Americans were equally divided between the Democratic and Republican Party. Working whites tended to vote for Democrats because ideologically, the Democratic platform better served their interests. That has changed. Today, 90% of the Republican Party is white. It is essentially a white party. And that's the different be- difference between political, a politically polarized society and an ethnically factionalized society. Mm-hmm. A society that's ethnically factionalized organizes itself politically based on 
ethnic, racial, or religious identity, and not based on the ideas and the ideology they hold um, most closely. Um, and so you had this move of the white working class to the Republican Party, which in terms of their economic interests makes absolutely no sense at all. That was not an ideological move. That was in some respects an identity move. Yes, I want listeners to really, to, to use this perspective when they see the midterm elections begin to accelerate and as we head for 2024 these are not arguments about issues they are really arguments about identity yes and that's why we are deeply enmeshed in in the kind of factionalization yes d- d- would you add something to that what's important to add is why that's dangerous um it's because there's something about identity that can be exploited. Um, people tend to turn to violence um, when they're afraid, um, when they and their families feel threatened. And if you can couch it in, in identity terms, that, that people are going to come after you because of your identity, that, that they're going to try to take your jobs because of your identity or their identity. Um, that brings up this visceral feeling of fear and hatred and, and, and that tends to motivate people, um, to fight more so than we disagree about political issues. So my last question here is what you, what you anticipate and what you fear most for 2024 when a lot of this legislation that has been passed in state legislatures is going to be in, in operation. What do you worry about? Uh, I worry that Americans will become increasingly disaffected with democracy because that is what the Democrats are aiming to do. Um, That a Republican um, comes to power who is savvy enough to figure out how to um, carefully weaken our democratic institutions even more. Um, I worry that will take an even stronger turn towards authoritarianism. I worry that we will follow in the path of um, Viktor Orban of Hungary, Erdogan in Turkey, Bolsonaro in um, Brazil, Modi in India, um, that the next Republican president will follow their playbook and figure out how they can centralize power and maintain power and convince Americans that having a strong person in power is better than um, than reforming and and committing ourselves to true democracy. Professor, I thank you very much for, yes, it's an ominous conversation, but a really necessary one. Thank you. Thank you very much.